The last hundred years or so have seen an explosion in dystopian literature, dystopian stories. Dystopias, especially for young people, have become a dominant genre. I know there have been a lot of dystopian movies made. I'm going to stick to books because that's what I know better. Uh, there's no question that some of the greatest authors of the last hundred years have written dystopias. H.G. Uh, Wells, Ray Bradbury, Cormac McCarthy. Some of the most influential books of the last century have been dystopian in nature. Think of 1984 by George Orwell or Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Uh, these are famous books. They get referenced constantly in our, in our own day. Uh, they have many imitators. Uh, dystopias dominate young adult literature with books like the Divergent series and the Hunger Games series. The word dystopia describes the opposite of a utopia. Uh, if a utopia is the ideal society, a dystopia is a dysfunctional society, a tyrannical, broken society. But as we consider dystopias, there are a couple things that, that stand out about most dystopian stories. First, in most of these stories, most of the people don't realize they're living in a dystopia. They are oblivious to the dehumanizing tyranny under which they live. In some cases, like Brave New World, which I think is probably the best of this genre, in Brave New World, the masses actually enjoy the dystopia. They're so brainwashed, they actually enjoy it. The tyranny has been so normalized, they no longer see it as tyranny. But then there's a second feature with dystopias. There's almost always a character who does recognize the dystopia for what it is, who warns about it, and who pushes back against it. So, for example, in Brave New World, if you know the story, that's John the Savage, who would rather die than live in a world without the Bible or Shakespeare, who, uh, who would rather live in a world with love, even though that means there's going to be pain that comes along with it. He'd rather have freedom, even if that means there's going to be danger, because he can see how dehumanizing the one world state uh, has become. The book of Zephaniah can be understood as a kind of dystopian prophecy. Zephaniah is announcing to Judah and to the surrounding Gentile nations that they are indeed living in a dystopia. They are living in deeply dysfunctional, oppressive, and idolatrous societies. In fact, these societies are oppressive and dehumanizing because they are idolatrous. Now, they don't recognize it. They might even boast in it. For example, Zephaniah addresses Assyria, which was one of the great political powers of the day and certainly a great threat to, uh, to Judah. In chapter 2, verse 15, Assyria says this, I am and there is none beside me. I am. That's God's special covenant name, the name God gives to himself in Exodus chapter 3. God says to Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him, I am sent you. And then, of course, that language, there is none beside me, that's the language God uses to describe his own uniqueness as the one true God in Isaiah 45, verse 5. So what is Assyria doing when Assyria says, I am and there is none beside me? Assyria is speaking blasphemies. Assyria is playing God. When a nation recognizes no God above the state, that state becomes God. It's as if the state teaches us to pray. Our ruler in the capital city, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy politicians will be done. 
Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us for our sins against the state. And lead us not into the temptation of being politically incorrect. For thine is the power and the glory and the kingdom forever. It's as if that's how Assyria is teaching its people to pray. Because Assyria says, I am and there is none beside me. Such nations with these kinds of aspirations, such nations think of themselves as gods. They think of themselves as the goal and center and end of history. They think of themselves as invincible. Assyria thought that way. Babylon thought that way. Rome thought that way. Many in America have thought that way. And you know what? They've all been wrong. And Americans who think this way will be shown to be wrong as well. When Assyria says, I am and there is none beside me, that is obviously arrogant and blasphemous. But is it any more arrogant and blasphemous than our nation? Say, when our nation redefines God's institution of marriage? Or when we say that you can create your own gender? Or thousands of other things that we do that clearly flaunt God's truth? Modern America, just like ancient Assyria, can play God as well. We can act as if there is no God above the state. We can be arrogant and blasphemous as well. Our state can act like God too. And we need to see that. So Zephaniah describes a dystopian world. Judah and the nations are in rebellion against God, and because they are in rebellion against God, they are dehumanizing themselves. They're about to realize the nightmare they're living in as the hammer of God will soon fall on them. And it's like Zephaniah, as a prophet, is pulling the fire alarm. He's warning the nations so they can repent while there is still time. Now remember, I said not only in a dystopian story do you often have the masses of people who don't even realize they're living in a dystopia, but another feature of dystopian stories is you've got a hero who stands up against the tyranny, who exposes it, who opposes it with all his might, who speaks truth to power. Well, in this book, of course, that is Zephaniah himself. Zephaniah plays that role here. So Zephaniah calls on Judah and the nations to repent. He calls them back to reality. He calls them back to the God who made them. He is the one in this book who exposes the matrix the nations have fallen into. Now, at this period in history, Josiah is also playing that role, at least in Judah. Uh, he's the king. He's calling the nation to reform. Zephaniah writes his prophecy in part to support Josiah's efforts at reforms. Remember, the book of the law has just been rediscovered, the book of Deuteronomy, and Josiah is seeking to bring the nation in alignment with what they have found in the book of the law. But Zephaniah here is the one who speaks truth to power, who calls on Judah and the surrounding nations to return to the God. Who made them. Zephaniah is leading the way in exposing these dystopian societies in Judah and the other nations. He pushes back against their destructive, dehumanizing tendencies, and he warns them of what's coming. And by warning them, he gives them an opportunity to repent and to escape this judgment, to move from a dystopia to a kind of utopia, if only they will turn back to God. I think Zephaniah is a very fitting book to look at during the season of Advent. Because Advent is the season of God's coming. It's when we focus on God's promise to come to his people, to come to his world, to come into his 
creation, to come to his people. But the question always, whenever God is going to come, the question is, will God come to bless or to curse? And the answer of the book of Zephaniah is, it depends. When he comes, will he find faith or not? Will he find repentance or not? The Lord is coming to judge, but will he judge for us or against us? You know, the major figure uh, during the Advent season is John the Baptist, even though uh, John's ministry, of course, begins much later. John, of course, is born shortly before Jesus is. John the Baptist is a major figure the church focuses on during the Advent season because he's the one who prepares the way for the coming of the Lord. He prepares the way for the coming of the Son of God. And in the Gospels, John is presented to us as the last of the Old Covenant prophets. He stands in this long tradition of prophets, and he is the last of the Old Covenant prophets. But for John, the Lord's advent means judgment is coming. That's what John announces, a coming judgment. Zephaniah is much like John the Baptist. John said the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, ready to chop it down. John stands in Zephaniah's tradition of announcing judgment. John and Zephaniah have a very similar message. Zephaniah and John are both preparing the people, warning the people about the coming day of the Lord when he's going to pass judgment. And just like John the Baptist cries out, repent or perish, repent and flee the wrath to come. So that is Zephaniah's message to Judah and to the nations. The day of the Lord is rapidly approaching. The time to repent is now. That's Zephaniah in a nutshell. What we want to do this morning as we look at this middle section of the book, we want to look at two things, really. First, we want to look at the threat of judgment coming upon the nations. And then second, we want to look at hints of hope that judgment will not have the last word. So first, threats of judgment, and then second, hints of hope. Let's talk about threats of judgment. We need to see that this section is all about God's dealings with the nations, how God deals with nations. And this is so important to understand because this is not just Zephaniah. This is found all over the place in the scriptures. When it comes to understanding God's dealings with the nations, we need to learn to see the big picture. And I would say that we as American Christians have a peculiar blind spot when it comes to this. For whatever reason, American Christians really, really struggle with this. I think it's because our society tends towards a kind of hyper-individualism. And so we tend to be myopically focused on our own lives. Even when we read the Bible, it's all about what does this mean to me? How does this have relevance for me? We tend to look at things through a microscope. And so we see a very small picture, the very small picture just of our own lives. And again, it's what scripture means for me or what God has done for me. And we focus on a personal relationship with Jesus. And of course, that has its place. There's no doubt about that. That is important. But focusing on the individual only can cause us to miss what major swaths of Scripture are about. Because God not only wants us to look through a microscope and see what this Scripture means for me, what it means for my own life and my relationship with Jesus, God also wants us to, to look at things through a telescope. 
He wants us to see the big picture of his work in the creation as a whole. He wants us to see the big picture, the, the panoramic view of his work in history as he deals not just with individuals, but with nations. Because God's purposes are global, you could even say cosmic. Zephaniah's prophecy has implications certainly for our personal lives. There is no doubt about that. But he also paints his prophecy on a very big canvas. And he's not just concerned with individuals. He's got a global focus. His prophecy is international in scope. He's concerned with God's dealings with the nations. And so, so get this, he's not only concerned with individuals. He's not even just concerned with God's dealings with the church, though that's included. He's concerned with how God deals with nations. Zephaniah's prophecy here in chapter 2, especially, is directed to several specific nations. I figure he must have written this prophecy down, several copies of it, and sent this prophecy out as letters to each one of these nations that is addressed so they could hear the word of the Lord through the prophet Zephaniah speaking to them. See, we need to understand the Bible speaks to us at many different levels. The Bible speaks to us as individuals, as families, as cities, as nations, as humanity as a whole. The Bible speaks to us in all these different ways. So sometimes there are things in the Bible that are very personal. We've even got letters in the Bible that are addressed to specific individuals. So for example, uh, Paul wrote letters to individual pastors. But God speaks to individuals. But of course we also know God speaks to families. God speaks to nations. You've got this section in Zephaniah and so many other passages that do this. Of course, there are certain passages in Scripture that are universal. And all of it's instructive to us, but we need to understand how God speaks to us in all of these different contexts and relationships. And what Zephaniah shows us here as he writes these letters to the various nations, as he gives these prophecies to the various nations, we see that nations matter to God. God reckons with nations. Nations, that is, groups of people bound together by ethnicity, language, geography, government, culture. Nations matter to God. God recognizes nations. God established nations. The rising and falling of nations is in his hand. In Acts chapter 17, as Paul is preaching, he explains how God established nations in his providence. He says God made from one man Every nation of mankind having determined the times and boundaries of their dwellings. Paul is saying all these different nations we see in the world round about us, God brought all of that about. Perhaps humanity would have multiplied out into many different nations even in an unfallen world. I think that's likely. It seems likely that even apart from sin, even if Adam had not fallen into sin, that God would have intended for the human race to reflect both his unity and diversity, since humanity is made in the image of the Trinity, after all. So it seems we would have had nations, different people, groups, even in an unfallen world. So we can say nations are part of God's good design for humanity, for history, for the world. Nations are vital to God's purposes. And so we have to think not just in terms of the individual, and not even just in terms of your family. We've got to learn to think at a national scale. We can scale down to look at the individual. We can scale up to look at the nation or even the whole world. And that's what Zephaniah would have us do. He wants us to see God speaks to nations. God blesses nations. God curses nations. God evaluates and, and sifts and tests and judges nations. 
In fact, we read this morning, our, our, our gospel lesson was from Matthew chapter 28, that famous passage known as the Great Commission. The Great Commission is structured in terms of nations. Jesus gives his mission to the church in terms of nations. We are called to disciple nations. And so you cannot conceive of the mission of the church apart from nations, apart from understanding nations. So this part of Zephaniah is about God's dealings with the nations. The judgments he has in view no doubt point to a final judgment. But the judgments themselves are earthly and historical in character. These are things that are going to take place in history. Things like famine and military conquest and economic collapse and exile are all in view. These are tools in God's toolbox as he seeks to, to chasten and discipline and punish the nation. Note too, it's very obvious here, God's judgments are not confined to the chosen nation of Israel. Gentile nations will be judged as well. Now, those Gentile nations may not have the full revelation of God's word. The oracles of God belong to the Jews in a unique way in the ancient world. But the nations round about, the Gentile nations have received some kind of revelation from God. And they are responsible for what they've been given. They will answer for it. Deuteronomy chapter 28 describes blessings that will come upon Israel for obedience and curses that will come upon Israel for disobedience. As the covenant nation specially called by God, of course, that's not a surprise. That God would bless his people when they do what he says and that God would punish his people when they do not. But what we find in the rest of scripture is that God deals with the Gentile nations in just the same way. The same principles apply. And so in Jeremiah 18, and Jeremiah is roughly a contemporary with Zephaniah, Jeremiah says, if God speaks against a nation and then that nation repents, God will relent of the disaster he was going to bring on it. And then Jeremiah says if God was going to bless a nation, to build that nation up, to, to plant it and to prosper it, if that nation does evil, if that nation turns against God, he will relent from the blessing and he will bring calamity instead. And this is the consistent teaching of Scripture again and again and again. Look at Amos. The whole book of Amos is basically about this. Amos, like Zephaniah, is writing letters out to the various Gentile nations. This is all over the place in the Scripture. Think about what God told Abraham about the Canaanites who were living in the Promised Land. God has promised this land to Abraham. The problem is there are people already living in that land. And so what's going to happen? Well, God will not give the Promised Land to Abraham in his lifetime because he says to Abraham, the iniquity of the Canaanites is not yet full. These Gentile nations, the, the, the iniquity of the Canaanites is not yet full. It's like every nation has a cup. And when a nation sins, that cup begins to fill up. And as they sin more and more, the cup continues to fill until finally it gets filled to the brim. And then the, the, the day of the Lord for that nation arrives. And the hammer of God's judgment falls, and God makes that nation drink the cup of his wrath. That's what God said to Abraham about the Canaanites. That is true for every nation. It's also clear that nations are judged especially for sins in two areas. And we'll see this in Zephaniah, but this is something you find throughout Scripture. In Genesis, well, first we'll, we can say this. If they're judged in two areas, what are they? The first one is this. They're judged for how they treat the church. And in particular, they will be judged for persecuting God's people. In Genesis chapter 12, God says he will bless those who bless his people and he will curse those who curse his people. 
So how a nation treats the church determines how God treats that nation. If a nation persecutes God's people, God will bring judgment against that nation. God will treat that nation in the same way. The second thing you see is that nations are judged for their pride because pride is idolatry. Pride leads to idolatry and is, in fact, idolatry. Pride goes before a fall, and that's true of nations and empires just as it is true of individuals. Arrogant nations that will not worship God, that will not recognize God and give God his due in their national life and culture invite judgment upon themselves because God is a jealous God. He's jealous to be given the service that is rightfully his. And so to reject God, to fail to recognize God is to invite God's judgment. God should be acknowledged as God by every nation. Every nation has a God. Every nation has a religion. No nation can be truly secular. But nations that worship and structure their social life in service to worthless idols rather than the the true God will be judged by the true God. That is the clear message we have in the prophets again and again. This time of year, we sing joy to the world, that great Advent and Christmas hymn. It includes these these words about Jesus. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. Think about that line. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. What does that mean for, for, for him to make the nations prove? It means that Jesus puts the nations to the test. He examines them, he sifts them, and he does this even in the course of history. And again, don't think this is just an old covenant reality as if, oh, well, that was then, this is now, it's completely different. No, in the New Testament scriptures, we see the same realities. We see God judging the nations there as well. And so the second half of Romans chapter 1 It's all about God judging the nations for going their own way and refusing to acknowledge him. The second half of Romans 1 is about God revealing his wrath from heaven against the nations that have rebelled against his ways, against what God has clearly revealed about himself through the created order. Uh, John MacArthur, who's certainly one of the more popular and famous pastors of our day, been around for a long time, uh, John MacArthur preached a sermon on this a couple years ago, and what he said was so good, I just want to quote a bit of this to you. Listen to what John MacArthur said. He said, when any government stands against God and his law in scripture and against his people and his church, that nation invites judgment on a personal scale and a national scale. When government thinks its only responsibility is for physical, material, social, and temporal needs and ignores the spiritual reality of the true God and people's spiritual needs. When a nation becomes indifferent to the true God and his word and his law, that nation makes a grave mistake, which, if not reversed, will lead that nation to its own destruction. The notion of a secular state is a lie. Government is ordained by God. He goes on, he says, the state that sows the seed of national neglect of God will sooner or later reap a harvest of national disaster and national ruin. He says there is no God except the God of the Bible. 
There is no true morality but the morality of the Bible. There is no true worship but the worship of the true and living God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no personal blessing apart from Him. There is no national blessing apart from honoring Him. And there is no way to Him except through Jesus Christ. All irreligious, immoral, indifferent governments will self-destruct. And that self-destruction is only apparent self, apparently self-destruction. It is really a divine judgment. Godless complacency or open rebellion against God ends up with the same result. And then MacArthur cites several different scriptures that teach these things. I'll give you some of these. Psalm 33, 8. Let the earth fear the Lord. Let all the nations of the world revere him. Psalm 117, 1. Praise the Lord, all you nations, and extol him, all you peoples. Psalm 72, verse 11, let all kings bow down before him and all nations serve him. Proverbs 16, 12, it is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts for a throne is established on righteousness. Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a disgrace to any people. MacArthur's exactly right. Those scriptures are clear. And this helps us to understand what Zephaniah is about, what Zephaniah is doing here. This is the big picture of Zephaniah's prophecy. Now, I want you to consider a few details here. That's the big picture of what you have in chapter 2 and into chapter 3. Now, consider a few details here. Zephaniah is pronouncing judgment on different nations round about Judah. It's as if he's standing in Jerusalem and he's looking at, at, at the different nations all around Judah and he's going to move from west to east, from north to south, pronouncing judgment on the nations around Judah. It'd be like if I'm standing here in Alabama and I say the judgment is coming on Mississippi and Georgia, on Florida and Tennessee. Judgment in every direction. Judgment's going to flow out from Jerusalem to the four corners of the earth. And then, of course, after pronouncing judgment flowing out to the four corners of the earth, Zephaniah is going to announce judgment on Judah as well. So let's look at this, and, and, and the details here, we can move through them really quickly. Uh, chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, Zephaniah pronounces judgment on the Philistines to the west. And the way he does so is really poetic. There are a number of puns here in the Hebrew. I won't go into that, but it is really interesting to consider how literary it is. There, there's, a, there's a kind of literary beauty, uh, even though the passage itself is very brutal. The major cities of uh, Philistia are mentioned here, at least four of the five major cities of Philistia are mentioned here. The fifth city, Gath, that's not mentioned, had actually allied with the tribe of Judah back in David's day, and that's probably why it's not mentioned. It'd be included in the judgment that falls on Judah. But four of these five cities, these are the four great cities of Philistia. And what's going to happen to Philistia? The nation will be forsaken and left desolate. The Philistines are linked to Canaan in verse 5. They're acting like Canaan. They're perhaps seeking to encroach upon Israel's land, take back the land that God gave to Israel. They're acting like Canaanites, so they will get the Canaanite treatment. They've lived like Canaanites, they will be destroyed like Canaanites. Then Zephaniah turns to the east, so that's the west, now he turns to the east to deal with Moab and Ammon. And these nations have quite a history, a very ugly history. These nations descend from Lot, who if you know the story in Genesis 19, he has an incestuous relationship with two of his daughters after Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. And these nations of Moab and Ammon come from Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughters. Now these nations had the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, the judgment that Sodom and Gomorrah received, but they did not learn 
the lesson from that judgment. And so, because they're acting like Sodom and Gomorrah, they will be judged like Sodom and Gomorrah. Zephaniah says they will be, they will be turned into a place overrun with weeds and salt pits. And why is this judgment coming? Well, again, go back to Genesis 12. How you treat the church determines how God treats you. That's true for all nations. These nations have a long history of antagonizing and persecuting God's people. And you see this when Israel comes out from Egypt in the, uh, in the Exodus. Uh, you see it a little bit later in the book of Numbers. The people of Moab sought to curse the Israelites. These are nations that have insulted and mocked God's people for generations. Not only that... Uh, Zephaniah points to their arrogance. Their arrogance was widely known. Isaiah also talks about the arrogance of Moab and Ammon. And so Zephaniah says, the Lord will be awesome against them. The Lord will go to war with these nations, according to verse 12. He's going to wage war against these nations and against their gods. And so verse 11 says, the gods of Moab and Ammon will be famished. Those gods will be starved. Those idols will be starved because no more sacrifices will be offered to them. God's going to humiliate, humiliate these arrogant nations. He's going to humiliate their gods. And then we turn to the south, verse 12. Remember, this is the land of Zephaniah's father. Zephaniah's father was a Cushite. Ethiopia is the land of Cush. And they get just one verse, a very short warning. They will be slain by the sword of the Lord. That's all the warning they get. That's all they needed to know. Then you've got verses 13 to 15, which deal with Assyria and its capital city, Nineveh. Now remember, Jonah had gone to Nineveh, and Jonah had warned of God's judgment against Nineveh, and the Ninevites had repented. The king led them in a kind of citywide and even nationwide repentance, and they converted to, to, to the true faith. They began to worship the true and living God. But now they've fallen away from the worship of God, and so they will be judged. Nahum, the prophet Nahum, has already sent a letter to Nineveh announcing this judgment. Now Zephaniah does as well. And it's interesting how this judgment is described. Of course, animals are very prominent in the story of Jonah. And even at the end of the story of Jonah, we see God having compassion upon uh, the animals of the city. But now the judgment's going to come. What's going to happen? The judgment comes in the form of animals overrunning the city. This is a reversal of the dominion mandate that God gave to the human race in the beginning. Man should rule over the animals, but now the animals will take over the once great city of Nineveh. They will lose their dominion even over the animals. What's happening in all these passages? God is rendering judgment against the Gentile nation. And you might think, oh, well, Gentiles get judged, pagans get judged. Great. The people of Judah might have been thinking, yes, we've been waiting for God to judge the Gentile nations, but guess what? When we come to chapter 3, Zephaniah turns the guns of judgment against Judah, against God's own people, against the city of Jerusalem. They cannot take comfort in God's judgment falling on their enemies because they too are due for judgment. What's been happening in Jerusalem means they too are ripe for judgment. And see if any of this sounds familiar. See if you can't find echoes of our own society, what's happening in America today in the way Zephaniah describes the situation in Jerusalem. In verses 3 and 4, he describes how their leadership in church and state is corrupt. 
As far as the state goes, he says, her princes are like lions and her judges are like wolves. They devour the people till not even a bone is left. They've got civil rulers, civil magistrates. They've got judges and, and princes, rulers in civil power who are using their power to oppress rather than to serve. They're not faithful magistrates ruling in justice. They're ruling in this self-serving way. But it's not just the civil order that is corrupt. You can say the ecclesiastical order in Jerusalem is corrupt as well. The prophets and the priests are corrupt. The prophets should teach the people God's truth. A true prophet like Zephaniah is seeking to do that. But the city is filled with false prophets. They're fickle, Zephaniah says. They're insolent. They preach fluff sermons that lack gravitas. They just tell people what they want to hear. They cry out, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And so Zephaniah says these prophets are treacherous. They are misleading the people. They cannot be trusted to speak the truth. They speak lies. They tickle the people's ears. Sounds like a lot of the church in America today. The priests are no better. The priests should be leading the people in reverently worshiping God and in setting before the people a godly, law-abiding example. Instead, Zephaniah says they pollute the sanctuary and they do violence to God's law by how they worship and how they live. Of course, because the leadership is corrupt, the people are corrupt as well. You see this in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, which describe their rebellion and disobedience. They have heard God's voice, but they have refused to listen. They have heard God's voice uniquely among all the, the nations and cities of the world. Jerusalem has heard the voice of God. The oracles of God belong to her, but what has she done? She has refused to trust and obey God. Zephaniah says they have refused to accept correction. It's interesting, in the book of Proverbs, accepting correction with humility is a sign of wisdom. The people of Jerusalem lack that wisdom. They cannot be corrected. They're, they're stubborn, they're hard-hearted, they're stiff-necked. And, and Zephaniah also says they refuse to worship by drawing near to God. They're not attending worship services anymore. These people have dropped out of going to synagogue and going to the temple to worship. They just don't care. They're indifferent to God. Jerusalem has God in her midst, verse 5. God is in her midst, and yet she does not care. Zephaniah says God's righteousness, that is, his faithfulness, is brought to light every morning. He's unfailing. He's unfailing in his love and kindness to the people. And yet, Zephaniah says these unjust people refuse to see their own shame. They should feel shame. They should feel shame, but they are so calloused and so desensitized they don't. It's always a huge problem when people do shameful things and yet do not feel shame. When they do shameful things but are shameless about them. That's always a problem. That's what Zephaniah is saying. And so this is a city, this is a culture, this is a civilization in chaos. And indeed, I think you can glean from this that their sin, the sin of Jerusalem, is actually worse than the other nations round about They've been given greater blessings. They've got greater privileges. And so therefore, they've got greater responsibilities. And yet they're turning away from God. They're turning against God. They've got God in their midst. Their city surrounds God's throne room in the temple. But all this does is serve to magnify their rebellion. See, really, we could say apostasy is worse than unbelief. To have had the truth of God, to have had the covenant of God, and to turn away from that, that's far worse than to have never had those things in the first place. 
And that's where Jerusalem is. They know God's truth. They've got God's covenant and they've rejected it. And so they are responsible for that. Jerusalem is like salt that has lost its saltiness. The city is only fit to be trampled underfoot. The more people know the truth, the more fully and consistently they can rebel against that truth. The higher God takes you in an understanding and knowledge of his truth, the further you can fall. The worse you will be if you rebel against God's truth. The most wicked men who have done the most damage to our society and to our civilization over the last several hundred years have all been people who started off in the church and then turned against God. And because they knew the truth, because they had seen the light, they were that much more wicked when they turned against it. That's Jerusalem. That's Jerusalem. That's also an apt description of much of the church in our day. Zephaniah then sums this up in verses 6, 7, and 8. Everything in this whole middle section of the book. It says God has cut off the nations. They're left death, devastated and desolate. Their cities are destroyed and emptied. And Zephaniah says all of this is just. Verse 7, he says, these are people who will rise up early to do wickedness. You know how... Sometimes if you've got a lot to do, you've got a real mission for the next day, you will wake up early so you can get to your business, you can get to work. Well, these are people who would get up early. They would set the alarm clock really early. They wouldn't hit snooze. They would jump out of bed so they could run do wickedness. That was their mission. Zephaniah says, this is the kind of people I'm speaking to. These are the people who are calling down God's judgment upon themselves. And so verse 8, God will gather up the nations on that day, the day of the Lord. This day in history when God judges them, he will pour out his indignation and his fierce anger until all the earth is devoured with the fire of his jealousy. And the historical record shows us that each of these nations listed in Zephaniah's prophecy was indeed judged. Many of these nations like the Philistines and the Moabites and the Ammonites no longer exist. The Assyrian Empire is certainly long gone. God's word came to pass. And all of this should be a lesson for us. All of this should be a lesson for modern day America in 2022. Because God has not changed. And God's word has not changed. God's law has not changed. God still judges nations. Oh sure, his ways are inscrutable. But the rule given in Jeremiah 18 still holds true. Obedient people who recognize and worship God, obedient people are blessed. Rebellious people who turn away from God to serve idols. Rebellious people who ignore the church or even persecute the church call down curses on their own heads. To be sure, God is patient, but he will not endlessly delay his judgment. God is good, but he is not safe. He is gracious, but he is never indifferent to sin. A people will reap what they have sown. And that is something I would say modern day America needs to hear. God's own people who bear his name, who have his presence in their midst, will always be judged more severely. Judgment begins with the house of God. Much has been given. Much will be required. In fact, it's interesting to look at the pattern in the book of Zephaniah, what we've seen so far. The pattern of the book so far goes this way. Judgment on the world in chapter 1, verses 1 to 6, and then judgment on Judah, the people of God, chapter 1, verse 7 to chapter 2, verse 3. And then there's another cycle. You have judgment on the world in chapter 2, verse 4, down through chapter 2, verse 15, and then judgment on Judah in chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. It's as if the judgment builds up. Judgment falls on the nations, but an even greater judgment awaits the people of God. 
But here's something else we need to see. Throughout these declarations of judgment, there are threads of hope woven in. Hints of hope. Little breadcrumbs that Zephaniah has dropped into his prophecies of doom and gloom. So the people will know God is gracious. And judgment's not going to have the last word. There is hope. In fact, the entire book, and we'll see this in the weeks to come, the entire book ends with hope for the nations and for Judah. That's really what the second half of chapter 3 is all about. But here as we wrap this up this morning, let me just point you to some of these hints of hope, some of these threads of hope in this section in chapters 2 and 3. When the Lord comes, the advent of the Lord, will that be good news or bad news? Can the dystopia become a utopia? There are a few threads of hope here. First, consider this. Zephaniah says there will be a remnant. Chapter 2, verse 7. In the midst of prophesying judgment, he says, the coast shall be a remnant for the house of Judah, and they shall feed their flocks there. In other words, Zephaniah is saying, the Lord will intervene for them. He will return them from exile. There will be a remnant that is spared. That's a hint of hope. Verse 9, same thing. When Moab and Ammon are judged, the Lord's people shall plunder them, and the remnant of my people shall possess it. Zephaniah says, the, the judgment's going to spare a faithful remnant of God's people. Judgment will fall on Moab and Ammon. But God's going to preserve a remnant for himself. So that's one thread of hope, one hint of hope. There's going to be a remnant. But a second thread of hope, the remnant will grow. The remnant will not stay a remnant. The remnant will grow into a great multitude. So chapter 2, verse 11, after saying that the Lord will go to war with the false gods and those who worship them in the nations, God says, people shall worship him, each one in his own place, indeed all the shores of the nations. Zephaniah points ahead to a future day when God will be worshipped across the earth. This is a really remarkable prophecy. The remnant of Judah will grow into a global worldwide, international multitude. It's so interesting. Every metaphor or image we have of the kingdom of God is of something that grows. Every image we have of the kingdom of God shows it is going to grow over the course of history. When Jesus tells the story of his kingdom, what is to come in parables like the mustard seed in Matthew 13, you see this. The kingdom is described as something that starts small, like a remnant, and then grows into a massive kingdom that fills the earth. The mustard seed, Jesus says, is the smallest of all the seeds. It's like a tiny remnant, but it's going to grow to be the biggest tree in the whole garden. And the birds of the air will come and take their nesting, find a home in that tree. Zephaniah is prophesying this reality. It's just what the angels sang about when Jesus was born in Luke chapter 2. They announced peace on earth and goodwill towards all mankind. Jesus came to bring salvation to the nations. It is remarkable how many of our Advent and Christmas hymns are about the nations. Not just what God's going to do for Israel, but what God's going to do for the nations. And not only that, but there's something else really interesting here. Zephaniah anticipates a time when Gentile worshipers of Yahweh will not have to make a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem to offer worship. Rather, he says, they will worship him in their own place. This is really remarkable. And I don't know how they would have understood this prophecy when it was first given. 
But it's the kind of thing we find coming to fulfillment in the New Testament scriptures. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18. He says, in the new covenant, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus says, I will be in the midst of them. Jesus is the Shekinah glory of God. And he says, that Shekinah glory of God, you won't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem anymore to get it, to get near to it. Wherever two or three gather in my name to worship me, there I will be in all my glorious presence. I will be in your midst. You don't have to travel to Jerusalem to draw near to God anymore. The glory of God will be in your midst wherever two or three are gathered, just like we are here this morning. Or think of John chapter 4 when Jesus engages with the Samaritan woman at the well. She wants to know, what is the proper place of worship? Is it the temple in Samaria where we worship or that temple down in Jerusalem? And Jesus says, the time is coming when those who seek the Father will worship in spirit and in truth. Which is to say, this is Jesus' way of saying, the true temple, the true place of worship will be wherever the Spirit gathers disciples of Jesus. This is a temple right here this morning. Not because this building is special in any kind of way but because God's special presence is here in our midst. He has made us his special people. So Zephaniah indicates the kingdom will go out to all nations. God will be worshipped all over the world in spirit and in truth. Each people group will worship God in their own place. And of course, Zephaniah is not the only prophet to announce that this will happen. Malachi says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the Lord will be worshipped. The Lord will be worshipped all across the face of the earth. The whole earth will be covered with the worship of the Lord. Zephaniah gave his prophecy in the 600s B.C. A long, long time ago. But you know what? When Zephaniah made that promise that each people will worship God in their own place, our gathering here this morning is the fulfillment of that prophecy. You want to see Zephaniah's words come to fulfillment, come to fruition? Look around. We are the fulfillment. We are gathered here to worship God. And God comes to meet with us here. And my prayer, my hope, my expectation is every Lord's Day, when God is in our midst in this place, that God is going to find us a repentant and faithful people. And so he will bless us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.